You are listening to A Bigger Life, a podcast by The Crossing on how to live into God's bigger story. Welcome to A Bigger Life. I'm your host, Dave Cover, and I'm excited about today's episode. There are thousands of people who attend The Crossing who have unique stories of faith and or interesting vocations that I think are worth discussing and worth learning from. That's what A Bigger Life is all about. It's about how the gospel is calling us into a bigger life in our world and culture to help others. And today I'm talking with Brent Bishore. Brent is an entrepreneur that lives here in Columbia and does most of his business everywhere else but Columbia. But he and his family live here in Columbia, and he's a member of The Crossing. He's a member of my small group. He's a member of my men's Bible study. He's become a pretty good friend over the years. And we're going to talk today about his journey of faith and what I think are some unique business principles and how the two intersect. Brent has written extensively for Forbes magazine as a contributor, writes about business from a Midwest point of view, but his main job is as CEO of Adventures, a company that he founded. And he describes the company itself as a family of companies that invest in family-owned companies. Brent, tell me why you say family of companies and a fam- family-owned companies. Family is kind of the key word there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I'd say that we um, were structured very differently than most conglomerates or um, funds, right? So we um, we buy um, majority stakes typically in um, companies that that have been owned by one family for a very long period of time and try to give them a really long. Um, long-term home uh, for the for the business. So what we think about it is, you know, when we make an acquisition, we're adding to the family, um, mm-hmm. and we try to treat people as family. We try to operate as a family of companies, um, help each other however we can. How, how did family become the key operative word there? I think it's just the the best analogy we have for kind of how we think about um, you know families long term. Uh, families, you know, sort of permanent. Sounds like a kind of commitment to people, though. I mean, family is yeah. not something you come and go. Family is right. something that says, I'm committed to you. Right. We have a sort of sense of, you don't have to be perfect. Nobody is. And yet I'm still committed to you. Is that how you feel about your businesses? Yeah. So uh, so our holding period, um, getting sort of technically into the business side, uh, we, we, we like to say when we acquire a company, we have no intention of ever selling it. Now, there's some circumstances that it may be better for the employees. It may be better for everyone if uh, somebody else comes along and it's a perfect fit for them and they can do more with it and the, you know, the employees can prosper under that, um, that, that we, we might divest. Um, but for the most part, we never enter into an investment with an intention to sell, which makes us um, almost unique in the business world. So the norm is uh, most people that that do our type of work um, will buy and sell an investment within five years. And so I think that um, the mentality that you have when you uh, are, are buying and flipping companies is a very different mentality in almost every way, how you make decisions, how you treat people, um, how you look at sort of win-win-win partnerships across the company, maybe with vendors or with uh, suppliers or you know customers, uh, communities. So we try to take into all those account. So rather than buying and flipping companies, you're you're buying into a long term relationship with companies. Yeah, you know? we we, we want to have a. I think relationship is the is the best way to describe it. And I think that you know sort of the 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 family moniker that we put on it is sort of our mentality towards that long term relationship. 
you're what, 33 years old? 34. 34. You own five companies? Correct. Across the country? Yep. None, uh, maybe one of them here in Columbia? Or? Uh, one of them is headquartered here yeah. in Columbia, correct. Yeah. But, but uh, yeah, most of them, we have, we have uh, operations on the West Coast and the East Coast. Just to put it in context, last year you had seven, about $75 million in revenue without any outside capital at all. This is- yeah, yeah. No, so we, we've, we've grown uh, pretty dramatically over the years. We were um, you know, on the Inc. 500 list in 2011, and we just made it this last year. Which, yeah, it, it's, been, it's been a really wild ride. We've, we've um, done better than we deserve, and uh, it's been a, been a really fun process. You used to write for Forbes magazine. I remember reading a few things you've written. Yeah, that was that was a fun stint. Um, they asked me to to write, and I, I tried to take kind of a Midwest uh, perspective, shine the shine the spotlight on uh, the area of the country that I joke with my friends that uh, they fly over. Yeah. So let, let's switch gears here a little bit. The reason why you and I are friends is because, like I said, you go to our church. We 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 had lunch together and have developed a relationship that is at least at the beginning centered around conversations about faith, conversations about Christianity, conversations about the Bible. Uh, but but tell us a little bit. How did you become a Christian? How how how? Will you have your faith now? You would say you're a Christian. Your faith is in Christ. Your faith is in the Bible. How did you get to that point? So you know if if. Um if you would, if I could go back ten years ago um, or twelve years ago, and and uh, look at myself getting ready to say what I'm getting ready to say, I would be the uh, I would be shocked. Um, I I am um, I would call myself a reluctant Christian. It's sort of I came to it uh, kicking and screaming, and and you know I really feel like God called me. I, I'm <laughs> I don't have trouble believing that God calls people because I have no reason to explain my faith otherwise. Um, you know I can remember when I was probably six years old, maybe seven years old. Uh, my, my family attended a Presbyterian church in Joplin, Missouri, as we were growing up. And, you know, we were involved uh, in it. Uh, we would go to church, you know, decently often. Um, but I can remember telling my uh, my mom when I was six, seven, maybe I was eight, um, we were in the car. I can remember where in town we were driving because my, my brother started crying after I said this. I said, I'm, I, I don't believe in God. And, you know, my mom, uh, she, she's an educator. She was a college professor. She's very... Um, uh, patient uh, with my uh, intellectual arrogance, which has plagued my life, and um, she said, "Oh, well, why do you why do you think that?" And I mean, I started rattling off tons of different uh, uh, reasons why I didn't believe in God. And you know, my brother, who was who's about three, a little over, a little under three and a half years younger than me, uh, just starts bawling in the back seat, right? Because <laughs> uh, he's being taught in, in Sunday school that you know yeah. um, I'm I'm damned to hell, and yeah. and uh, you know, uh, yeah. anyway, you just switch teams. I just switch teams, yeah. right? And and um, anyway, uh, so I can I, I can always remember having this this deep struggle with um, with faith. I mean, it was something that I thought about a lot. Um, I, I asked my mom. Uh, so I would say from that from that standpoint, I was sort of um, uh, sort of a default atheist, and I would go into uh, go into periods where I thought maybe it was plausible. And again, you're as a child, your 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 thoughts are not fully formed, right? It's not like I was. Uh, you know, deeply reading apologetics books and getting into the you know the, the deep end of the pool. I mean, this is just sort of it just didn't feel apologetics book being books that defend the Christian faith. Yeah, yeah. books that defend the Christian faith. Yeah. You know, uh, or or just the underpinnings of Christianity. And so, um, I can remember when I was I think fourteen, uh, I asked my mom to drive me to the church, and she was really confused. She's like, "Why? Why?" And it was in the afternoon, and I said, "Well, I'd set up a, a meeting with the head pastor at our church without my parents knowing it." How old were you? I was fourteen, I think. And, um, you know, I went in there and let him have it for about 90 minutes and, you know, God bless him. He was 
patient with me as well. It's kind of a recurring theme in my life of not deserving patience and, and getting it. But, you know, he sat there and, um, you know, talked to me about my, my insecurities. And, and really at that point, I think I'd made up my mind that I was, um, you know, I, I, I just had so many doubts. And so I was kind of fast forward from 14, 15, you know, as I graduated from high school through, you know, really my mid twenties, I was, um, maybe culturally Christian. I mean, growing up in the Midwest, um, you know, you, you sort of identify with Christians. I think there's, it's more an open culture here, although I think that's changing that's to some changed. degree. Yeah, that's back when you were um, but that's, you know, you know, and that's 10 years ago yeah. plus 20 years ago. Um, but, um, but anyway, I mean, I was a functional atheist. Um, I didn't really think about, um, you know, I thought about the big problems of the world. You know, I didn't didn't make sense to me a lot of it, and I felt very unrooted. Um, but you know, for the most part, I was uh, I was an atheist, and so it's been a, it's been an interesting process. My uh, met my wife. Uh, or my to be wife when we were dating, and and um, she's a strong believer and ha- always has been. It's incredible. Um, and uh, I told her, hey, if that's what you're looking for, she, you know, she wanted a, a a Christian husband. And I told her it's just not going to happen. Um, and so that was a huge point in our our relationship. Um, and slowly, I, I would say that my uh, faith journey has been moving from you know really being rooted in atheism to maybe a hint of possibility that that I didn't have it figured out uh, to more probabilistically thinking that it might actually be true and then you know I'd say over the last really five years since we've gotten to know each other I remember the first first lunch we had uh, again uh, the recurring theme of uh, me being prideful and arrogant and uh, you patiently uh, handling my questions but I remember I pounded you for what two hours yeah it's about it's a long lunch it's a long lunch yeah. and and uh, you know you uh, you know you defended it and and defended it well and I think that was a that was a major point of respect that I had and that really attracted me to uh, the crossing was in sort of intellectual honesty when it came to not having all the answers but really being thoughtful and rational uh, about that when I think about these last five years I, I think about it as which Brent am I going to talk to today so on one day I'm talking to a Brent that uh, has really softened his heart toward the idea of Christ being God and and uh, Christianity being uh, intellectually legitimate as a faith. And then I'd meet, talk to Brent a month later, and I don't know, yeah, I don't know, what about this and what about that? And we'd have these start-from-zero type questions again. It's almost like we, we it's like the last couple of years didn't happen and we're starting from zero. You'd go away for a few months, come back, and, and we'd have to kind of rebuild what but what had been lost. So talk about that a little bit. I mean, I just want to get to the honesty about the two steps forward, one step back aspect of belief. Yeah. I mean, so, so I, I think what you're referring to, I, I think I got over that about a year and a half yeah, ago. About a year ago. Yeah. A year, year and a half ago, yeah. fully kind of got over that stage. But I yeah. would say for, you know, for probably two, three years there, I kind of lived in the in-between. I, um, uh, I was, you know, I wasn't willing to fully commit uh, my life to Christ. Um, I, I wanted to, I was really worried about looking stupid. And uh, being, circles you run in, Christianity looks really stupid. Yeah, I mean the circles I run in are you know uh, entrepreneurship, f- high finance. You're out in San Francisco a lot. Yeah, you're in Denver. You're in New York City. Yeah. You're in Chicago. And yeah, and I have. I mean, being I, a Christian that doesn't doesn't give you any merit badges there. 
No, and and I think that um, you know I've always subscribed to the um, to the opinion that you know before I was going to really hold on to a tightly you know some belief tightly held, I, I wanted to be able to argue it better than somebody else could argue against me and have good answers for it. And I just didn't feel like I had that rooting, and so you know I kind of lived a, uh, a foot in both worlds. You know when when it suited me, I was a uh, uh, was a skeptic, and when it suited me, uh, and when I had moments you know, fleeting moments of faith, uh, it, you know I sort of got it. Um, and so, yeah, I wouldn't even say two steps forward, one step back. I would say it was two steps forward, two steps back, two steps forward, two steps back. I mean, it was kind of this dancing between the worlds. And again, thank you for all your patience. I, I know we've had, uh, we had basically the same conversation, uh, probably 15 times over two or three years. So it's, uh, uh, it's a process. What's it like now for you? What's your journey of faith now? I mean, are you, so you say in the last year-ish or so, you haven't, in a sense, slid back into unbelief, but I'm sure you have doubts. I'm sure you're still dealing with issues in your life. What, what What's your faith journey now? Yeah, so I would say that, um, you know, I have doubts. Um, I think that, that it's really hard to have faith without doubt. Um, so I kind of look at them as, you know, two sides of the same coin. What I would say is that that I used to believe that there there'd be something out there that I would discover um, that I would experience that, um, that I would find out about you know, the life of Jesus or uh, what was in the Old Testament, um, or I would discover a, another religion that um, would somehow really cause the sort of the foundations of my life to be reordered. And I've spent a tremendous amount of time over the last, you know, two, three years, you know, uh, really digging into the to the most fundamental basics. And, and those really just haven't shifted in, in, in a while. There's sort of the intellectual aspect to what we believe. I... I, I... I learn these things. I know these things. I choose whether or not I'm going to believe them. And there's an intellectual library in our mind of, of things we know. And then there's the aspect of our desires, our wants, our loves, our beliefs related to what we love, our what we desire, what we want. And that seems to be, again, just benefiting from my friendship with you as a backdrop to this podcast and everything in it. That seems to be the things you're dealing with now. You know, how, how do I keep my heart focused on what I know is true and what I do believe intellectually, but the heart drifts, the loves get infatuated with other things that walk by. How do I keep my belief, my faith on the thing that I really want to be ultimate? And that's God. Tell me, talk to me a little bit about that, what you're going through in that things you're learning in that, what the process of that is for you right now. That's a great question. I mean, I think this is the, probably the enduring question that I don't think we ever get right in our lives. I mean, I, I feel like, um, we never get it in our lives completely. Yeah. I mean, there's always a, this really is a two step forward, one step back issue. Right. Yeah. And, and, and I think it's also an exploration of, of this, this really weird paradoxical feeling that is, that, that I've always had my entire life, but, but is clearly expressed in the Bible of, you know, we are infinitely more awful than, than we can even imagine. Um, and we're infinitely more loved than we can possibly imagine. And I think that, you know, all of life these days um, uh, is a tension for me between me wanting to, to participate in a self-salvation project, right? The whole world is, is pointing me in the direction of, you know, be more, do more, um, get your own, do as, get as much as you can, eat as much as you can, get whatever you want. You are what right? you accomplish. You, you are, are what you own. Yeah. You are what you control. You are what you have power over rather yeah. than you are what you love. It, exactly. And I, and I think that um, even when we talk about the subject of love, not to drift too much from the question, but 
you know, um, I don't think I experienced uh, the same love that I feel now, um, what I would call love now before I became a Christian. It was it's a really interesting challenge for me to how to communicate that. Um, I saw a recent video, it was actually a Jewish rabbi who, who talks about this concept he calls fish love. And so fish love is, um, uh, you, you know, when you say, oh man, I, I love this piece of fish that I'm eating, right? I used to sit down at a beautiful restaurant and it just tastes wonderful. I love I, this fish. I love this fish. And so he calls this fish love because it's not it's not you don't love the fish in the sense of you you appreciate the fish, you appreciate the attributes of the fish, you you want to serve the fish, you want to make the fish happy. You're willing to sacrifice for the fish. No, you're not willing to sacrifice for the fish. You're, you're appreciating that the fish has, has, has died and is giving you a flavorful meal and filling you up and, and uh, making you feel good. You love what the good. fish is doing for you. You love what the fish is doing for you. And so I think that... That's what you love. Yeah. And I think that that's where, you know, prior to becoming a Christian, um, I didn't even know there was another type of love. So in my relationship with my wife, um, in in virtually all of my relationships that I had in, in, in my world, it was uh, somewhat of a function of what you could provide for me. So I was willing to be friends with you if you were smart enough and you were thoughtful enough and helpful you were enough helpful way. enough and, and um, you know, it's, it's, it's the fish love, right? And so, you know, I think the daily battle for me is uh, I feel a constant pull between uh, trying to serve others, and that's my, you know, trying to recenter my life around the cross. Genuinely love others Genuinely versus loving love, what they can right? do for you. And I mean, the standard is 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 unattainable, right? I mean, Jesus said, you know, love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself, right? Um, both of those standards are unattainable. This side of the resurrection. Right, this side of resurrection. Yeah, because yeah. we are tainted by sin. So I, I can love my wife, I can love you, I can love others, but there'll never be a love that's not tainted by sin. Right, we always have this side of the resurrection. Of course, yeah. we always have mixed motives. And so I think this is the, the daily struggle of like, you know, I forget in moments um, that I'm, I, I should be serving and not being served. And this happens across, you know, my personal relationships. You know, if I'm, if I'm driving in traffic and, and, you know, somebody cuts me off and I, how dare they, right? Well, is it their job to serve me by, by staying out of my way? Right. I mean, I don't know. I, I don't think so. Right. But it's really hard not probably to. Not. Probably not. Right. Yeah. Um, you know. But even in the workplace. Right. I mean, this is something that's really um, been been a challenge. And you know, I, I I fail at this all the time. Right. So in all fairness, I am nowhere close to exhibiting the love of Christ to any of my coworkers. Um, and you know, I have to apologize to them constantly. But um, you know, my heart really has changed. In, the, in in I want to to treat them in a self-sacrificial way. I want to serve them. Um, and I try to look at, uh, when I have some perspective, I try to look at it that way. Now my reactions, immediate reactions are, you're not doing what you you should be doing. You're not doing how I would do it. You're not serving me the way I want to be served. You're not, you know, you're not doing it, it, it the correct way, uh, as if I somehow know what the correct way is. And so, you know, slowly over time, I hope, um, I think I've made some strides in that area over the last couple of years. Um, I hope to spend the rest of my life trying to um, truly look at uh, people uh, not as being in service to me. So one of the things I've noticed in the last few months is that you have publicly self-identified as a Christian. I know on your Twitter profile, you, you, the first thing on there says Christian. And I know your, your, your audience, if you want to call it that, whatever your Twitter followers, you know, most of your business networks are in the coast, on the San Francisco, New York City. So I'm sure when they see that, that's going to that's gonna be a cognitive dissonance for them. Uh, what has been the reaction to you identifying publicly as a Christian in your, in your 
business and your network yeah. relationships? It was it, it was a uh, strangely tough decision, which probably shows you how self focused I am, right? Uh, I, uh, um, you know, I, I, for a long time I, I just tried to say nothing controversial. Well, and I remember a few months ago, I, maybe it was a year ago, I don't know, but we were you and I were talking, and you were getting ready to be interviewed the next day for a podcast, and you knew the first question was going to be, "Tell us your." daily routine and you go what am I going to say because the first thing I do is get up and read my Bible and pray do I say that I don't know whatever you said but no. I know that was when it was still a, a you know even the hint that you might be a Christian was something you had to think through yeah I mean I, I think it's just anytime you step out into something that that carries with it unfortunate con- connotations I mean I think that's the the reality the baggage we, with it yeah the yeah. reality we live in is is I think that the the headline grabbing Christians are the are the ones that have done something that the world deems to be, um, you know, incorrect and and often to we be deem it to be incorrect as well. Yeah, often mislabeling say, us. Yeah. You're right. I was going to say is often oftentimes you know I, I we, you and I have had a number of conversations where it's like darn it I wish so frustrating I wish Christians weren't such a terrible representation of Christ. Yeah, right? at least professing Christians. You right. Know, you know, well, and and, yeah. and you don't know, and it's yeah. like you know I think that that you know. Uh, that's what makes it so interesting, you know, being a Christian and really understanding, you know, how flawed and sinful I am. Um, you know, it's 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 hard to judge other people for 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 what they're believing, right? Um, yeah. But yeah, so stepping out was a was kind of a, a big decision um, that I, I, I mold over. I try to do it fairly subtly. I mean, no one likes the the person who you know beats other people over the head with religion, um, and I by no means want to do that. I mean, I. Um, yeah, like I said earlier, I mean, I'm I'm the most unlikely person to be to be a Christian uh, based on based on my my background and history, and and so and it was a big risk for you. I mean, that, it, you, it is you can't um, you can't take it off. It, it is I a mean, risk. You can take it off, but it's been out there. It's a right. Risk. It is a was risk. Was the risk worth it? Uh, yeah, for sure. I mean, I've had I've had some 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 hate mail and some haters, and and you know, of course, it's so easy to like once you identify as a Christian for people to see the 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 the, the inconsistencies in your life, right? I mean, it's like yeah, I, I'm I have a tendency towards pride. Uh, I you know I I. Uh, I think we're all unlike the rest of us, right? Well, I mean, I think I I have an, un, an unfortunate uh, 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 extra propensity towards pride, but but yes, um, uh, it's been worth it. I and I've had a lot of people reach out, actually, of other faiths, which is really interesting. That's something I didn't expect, hmm. um, and and strike up a conversation about faith. I had I've had a number of people who I thought I was getting on the phone to talk about a business um, problem or or something related to business, and they kind of you know two or three minutes into the conversation, well, hey, can, now can we talk about what I really want to talk about? Hmm. Um, um, and then we get into these long, like, you know, they blow holes in my day because we get into these long, like, discussions around the philosophy underpinnings of Christianity and, and how it's different than the world. And, and mm-hmm. um, it, it, it's, been a, it's been a wonderful thing, I would say. Um, it's come at cost. Um, you know, I have, I know for sure, lost out on some opportunities because um, of people's uh, uh, hopefully incorrect perception of what what that means for me, what that label. But um, it was a card played that shaped their perception of you. Yeah, and you've lost business because of it. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I would say that I, I, part of it is it's hard to know exactly how impactful because you don't know how many people just didn't contact you or, yep. or you know you, you just sort of lost out silently. I mean, I've had but a you few do know people. Some for sure. Had a few people come forward and 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 say, you know, I, I just I'm not can't get comfortable with you, right? Knowing that, but no, I mean, I, my hope in doing it is that it shapes a different. Um, you know, maybe small uh, and maybe insignificant, but it helps shape people's perception of of what it what it means to be a Christian.
So you keep saying the phrase, and I, I think it's a good phrase to keep repeating that, that you know, you, ha- you fail all the time. You're not going to be consistent completely with your beliefs. You fail, you struggle. So, so knowing that, what are you at least attempting to do now as a Christian business owner, a Christian boss, a Christian uh, wealth builder? What, what are you trying to do that's different than when you were not a Christian? I think it uh, fundamentally comes down to uh, being of service or being served. Um, and everything kind of flows from that in my mind. Uh, as the owner of the business, I mean, fundamentally, I, why, why shouldn't I be served? Isn't that what owners are? Owners are people who are served by others. You, you, know, you have employees that work for you. Um, what are they working towards? They're working to you know, make the owner richer. Right to to do my will, yeah. Um, and I think that you know, underlying, I, I probably wouldn't have said it exactly like that, but underlying a lot of my immediate reactions was this, you know, fundamental belief that they should be serving me. And and, and oh, by the way, no one's going to serve you well. Yeah, like your expectations of everyone else are going to be uh, sorely disappointed. Yeah. Um, and and so you know, I think a lot of my reactions in the past. Um, to when people didn't serve me well, uh, weren't great, and and I you know I'm ashamed of a lot of the. the you were ways. the center of the solar system, and that you saw them as revolving around you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How's that changing now? I, I mean, it's it's fundamentally changed in the sense that I like I truly am trying to serve. I'm I, I look at the people that I work with as being people that God put me in their life. I, I you know for a reason, and I want to help them to you know be successful in every way in their life. Um, to help show the love of Christ to them. Um, and again, I'm a really really poor representative uh, a lot of the time of that. So it's like in people you know I'm sure some of my coworkers will listen to this and maybe their eyes have rolled so hard they've hit the back of their head right. Yeah. But I, you know, I try to remember when people, when things don't go the way I want them to. How will you handle it? Will you, do you, if you believe in God, if you center your life on the cross, um, you should be okay if things don't go your way because you don't know. You don't know what the best thing for you is, and you don't know what role you're playing in somebody else's life. And so, you know, I think it's made me uh, kinder, gentler, uh, more understanding. Um, I certainly feel that way. Uh, I feel like I'm slower to anger. I feel like I'm. Um, you know, gentler than I used to be. I have a pretty hard edge naturally. Um, and I'm a kind of a driver type A. Um, I've tried to give up a lot of control and, and, and realize that, you know, people are going to do things differently and that's okay. And like, I, if I don't need to hold everything so tightly, um, you know, I'll let people make mistakes. I, I make mistakes. So why shouldn't they make mistakes? Um, you're not in business to employ people. I mean, in some sense, that's a byproduct that you're happy with and you find that to be a great way that God has blessed you so that you can be a blessing to others, as you said. But you are in business to grow companies, to be profitable, to create wealth, generate wealth. How, how, do, you, how do you deal with the balance between you, you, you do need performance out of people that you're paying. Uh, you, you do need a certain sense of standards. How, how do you balance genuinely wanting to care for, love, hope the best for, work for the best for your employees, while also needing a certain level of results out of them? It's a great question. Uh, I would say if if somebody's underperforming um, it, consistently, then that means that I've done a poor job and I'm directly responsible for them, right? Because there's, I mean, look, I don't have that many people that directly report to me. But if those people are directly reporting to me and they're not doing a quote-unquote good job, that means that I've failed them. 
me personally, I failed to put them in the best spot that they could be put in into, into a spot where they can use their talents and, and, um, be productive and, and sort of execute with excellence. Um, and, and really anymore, that's, that's not happening a ton. I mean, it happens occasionally. Um, you know, in, in terms of this tension between high performance and sort of work-life balance and all these things, I, you know, the, the, the longer I live, the less I um, feel that tension. Um, I, I, I think the artificial boundaries that, that are, you know, sort of are, are standard norms of between work and life um, are really from a fundamental lack of understanding about what is work and what is life and what role does work have in life. You know, God wants us to work. Uh, in fact, God gives us work as being a pleasurable activity, right? It's an expression. I mean, it, God's command to, to, to his people was go out and cultivate the earth, right? Um, you know, grow the garden, if you want first, to use that analogy. The first assignment he gave Adam was to work in the garden. Right. Yeah. And so um, I, I think it's uh, a hard work is a, uh, a fundamental gift that, um, unfortunately, because of the fallen nature of the world and our own sin, and and look the sinfulness of the people that you work with, and the bosses, and the control structures, and power dynamics, and all those things. I mean, I think that that work, unfortunately, has taken a taken a really negative connotation, right? Like, you don't hear anybody and you know, thank goodness it's Friday, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think that sort of thing. You know, I think that. Um, Hopefully, we're able to, um, you know, in the companies that that I'm involved in, create an environment where work is a positive, where it's life giving instead of life taking. And so, if it's that way, you know, you should working hard should, or, or and working well and being excellent and taking your job seriously should be beyond just you know working for the weekend. Should be and satisfying. It should be satisfying, inherently satisfying. Fun to do together. Now, it's not always going to be that way. There's plenty of parts of my uh, of my job that I would prefer not to do, especially in the moment. Sometimes I express that in unfortunate ways. Um, but at the same time, like I, I, I feel like God has 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 blessed me with being able to work with really amazing people and a really hard, difficult job that it can be impactful. But that doesn't mean that if your job doesn't have those attributes that like I think God makes us differently for different different roles, right? I think you can, you know, you can sweep the floors with excellence, right? But I don't see that fundamental tension. Like I don't feel like I, you know, that, that we have to like whip people to get them to to do what we want them You've to do. You've got the right? wrong structure if you have to whip people into success. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And I think that that ultimately like working, you know, chaining people to their desk and having them work eighty hours a week is is a fundamentally terrible long term strategy. In the short term, you may be able to get more performance out of somebody, but you're going to burn them out. They're going to hate their job. There's going to be friction created. Uh, and I think it's, it's just a really negative feedback loops that sort of create a downward spiral over time. And I think that's why there's a lot of turnover in in, in corporate America. Um, I think if, you know, if people really enjoy um, what they do and appreciate the people they're around and it becomes more like a family, um, there's not going to be a whole lot of turnover. Your whole business success is modeled Ultimately, the success criteria is generating wealth. Yeah. How yeah. do you reconcile that with yeah. the Bible? Yeah. So, so um, part of being a good investor is is generating returns. Um, and so, I think that there's there's sort of a couple aspects to it. Um, it doesn't. It's not a zero sum game like most people think it is. So, I, I don't fundamentally believe that. Uh, you know, we we can generate a higher return if we just take more, 
right? I think that we don't have to steal other people's pieces of pie. Right. We can grow the pie. Right. So 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 if everyone's focused on growing the pie and succeeding together, and you uh, align people's uh, interests in doing that, and you treat them with love and respect and kindness and generosity, um, you know, I, I think everyone will get enough. Now, look, we're sinful though. Everyone always thinks they're more responsible for success and less responsible for failure. I don't know of a single person who thinks they're overpaid. So I think that, and look, that's our own sinful nature, right? I can relate, right? Um, so I, I think there's always going to be some tension there. Look, at the, if you trust the people you work with and you trust that they have your best interest at heart and that they really truly care for you beyond just sort of the immediate fish love, you know, I, I think it creates an environment where you can all win together. I mean, one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about, and this is an unresolved issue, is, you know, how do you show more generosity? So how do you take a little less when you take could take a little more? Um, you know, I want to be able to do that for people. Uh, I also want to run a healthy organization. And at the end of the day, if if we don't have profits and if we don't have a, a you know a good balance sheet, a you know a stockpile of of resources, um, it's going to limit the ability for the people I work with to be able to uh, live enjoyable lives, to be a to be employed, to to do a good job, to do their job with excellence. Uh, you know all the things we've talked about, and so there's always this this tension. I think the big thing is making sure that we're aware of the tension, that we're not trying to hide from the tension, so that we can, you know, we can have open and honest conversations that that are sometimes tough about that. And I don't have it all figured out, and I, I'll be the first to admit I don't have it all figured out. The admired woman of Proverbs 31, she takes money, she buys a field, she plants a vineyard, generates wealth through that investment, that work, that product that she's created. So uh, to me, it seems like the Bible is trying to tell us that generating wealth, creating wealth is part of the universe that God has made. That's the part of the potential in the universe. We're not trying to take each other's wealth. We're trying to, the ultimate thing we're trying to do, I think, in, in society is partner together to generate wealth and create wealth and a rising tide lifts all boats. Yeah. I would fundamentally agree with that. I mean, I don't know if you saw recently the, uh, some guy tried to create a sandwich from scratch. No. Did, you, did uh-uh. you see this? No. And it like cost him like almost $2,000 and really? like a year of his life to create a single sandwich. And I mean, I think that's a great example of- Versus uh, using products that have been right, created by somebody right. somewhere. Using yeah. specialization, using the mechanisms of mm-hmm. capitalism that supply yeah. us with all of these amazing things all the time that we take for granted. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a that's a wonderful mechanism that God's given us to um, uh, help serve each other, right? I mean, yeah. it, it's almost ironic. I mean, I think I can see this in my life. God has definitely worked through my sin. And I think people, you know, God, God works through our own self-interest, Right, everyone, everyone wants their wants their thing, right? Yeah. But God works through that, and you know, a mechanism we call capitalism for us to serve each other, ironically, yeah. right? So the better I can serve you with a better product, the more money I can make, which serves me. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't feel that tension as much anymore, especially I think with what you intend to do with your wealth, right? I mean, this is a conversation we've had yep. um, over the years, and and you know, I um, other than making sure my daughters. Um, you know, don't get into a really bad situation. Uh, my wife and I plan to to pass along everything we make back into productive um, opportunities for the world to be able to enjoy it. I mean, we, we try to boats. support. Yeah, we really try to support. Um, you know, particularly, I think we have a passion for supporting the lowest of the low, right? I mean, supporting people and helping helping give people opportunities that 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 you know we didn't. 
um, we didn't go through the same circumstances they did. And I think that, you know, there's certainly not equal opportunity in the world uh, when it comes to material benefit, yeah. right? Um, ironically, the Bible talks about the people least likely to be with him are the wealthiest, right? So if you're going to look I at a single correlative... Camel yeah. through the eye of yeah. a needle. Camel through the, uh, so if you're looking at a single correlation, the more money you have, the less likely you are to um, be a believer. Why um, is that, you think? I, I think, look, if you, if you if especially in today's uh, economy in the United States, if you have above average resources, you can really pretend to be your own God for a long time. Like until you're facing life, you have the illusion you can control your life. Illness, right? Until until your until your kid gets sick, or until you you know something just catastrophic happens. Like you can kind of go through life without you know feeling like you need to pray. You don't really need much help. You can I mean, make things happen. You can make things happen. You can yeah. control your life. You can control your environment. Um, or at least you get the illusion that you can. And I mean, if you talk about wealthy people, right? So I'm just talking about like the sort of the normal you know, what I would say, working middle class, like you, you talk about really wealthy people and they really have the illusion that they're God. I mean, they can fly anywhere, anytime they want, buy anything they want, do anything they want, have anything they want. What does that sound like? Sounds like God. I mean, right. It's, I mean, you know, sure they have to sleep maybe a little bit unless you're injecting yourself with, you know, plasma from young kids that you've, you know, worked through a startup. And yeah, I mean, I don't know, you know what I'm saying? Like there's, there's shortcuts, there's hacks around how to, how to do these. But for the most part, I mean, you can pretend to be God. Um, you have more wealth than most. Yeah. How do you keep that from happening? How do you keep wealth from making you the camel trying to get through the eye of a needle? How do you keep yourself needy before yeah. God, not self depend, you know, self operating. Yeah, no, it's, it's a really, it's a tough, it's a tough question. I mean, I think surrounding myself with people who will tell me the truth. I mean, I think one of the, one of the challenging things uh, about having more resources is it creates kind of like a fun house mirrors in your life around you where everyone wants to tell you something different than what reality really is and help you avoid the ultimate questions. And so at the end of the day, uh, I have people like you in my life who you tell me I'm an idiot all the time and I agree. Um, and you know, my wife does the same thing and I have wonderful You tell co-workers. me the same thing. You don't, you well, don't hesitate to return the favor. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, I think you're, <laughs> That's what we're good for I think each you're a complete other. idiot. Yeah, no, right. <laughs> yeah. um, You've told me I'm overpaid. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I certainly know I am. Um, no, so, but, but, but I think it's in, in all seriousness, I am under no illusion that I can control the important things in my life. So going back to that John Ortberg uh, sermon, that's one of my favorites, the pieces go back in the box, right? Which basically his whole central thesis is, you know, you pull out a board game, let's say you play it with excellence and you just dominate the other players and the game's over. You won. Great. Now what? All the pieces go back in the box and the box goes back under the table and that's what life is right life is like that right all the pieces are going to go back in so the box in the end the thing that i fear the most is winning at the wrong game and i think that um i was on a path to winning winning with play money that doesn't have any currency in the kingdom of heaven yeah i mean i think that that winning at the expense of other people winning um by piling up as much money as you possibly can and and lavishing yourself with comfort and with you know experiences and you know all of these things which by the way are all good things those are all gifts from god it's just you know, what's the definition of idol, right? Taking good things and making them ultimate things. Um, making them your trust. Making yeah, them your sense exactly. Of security. Making them your salvation. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that a lot of people would say, well, wh- wh- what is it to arrive in in our, you know, sort of secular culture? It's the white picket fence. It's the family of four. It's the, the good job. Maybe it's the Tesla. Let's not bang on people with Teslas. I like the Tesla. Cool I bring it up as a good example. Yeah, no. But, but 
but yeah, I mean, it's it's the, and I think everyone has a slightly different vision of it, but I think that, you know, you, you can get a sort of a unified vision of things are just going right in your life. Well, guess what? All that stuff will be taken away from you. All of it. Slowly, one by one. One by one. Like your people in your life will die or you will die. They'll all be forced back in the box. Like all the pieces ultimately go back in the box. And I think that's what, you know, I, I try to remind myself, of the, you know, uh, of that on a daily basis when, when you know, we are making decisions uh, that impact a lot of people's lives and that have massive financial consequences. Well, massive for us. I mean, we're small, right? Yeah. Like, but, um, you know, big implications for us. And, and look, it, you know, the stakes feel high um, until you kind of realize that the pieces go back in the box and then the stakes feel lower. So you own five businesses across the country. I think you're buying more as we speak. If you have an employee in one of those businesses who's a Christian and he's thinking to himself or herself, how do I live redemptively as a Christian in my work environment? How do I, how do I bring an appropriate level of my faith to create, to shape the kind of work environment, the kind of productivity environment that the Bible calls us to do. Do you have any wisdom there? I don't know how much wisdom I have. I mean, I can tell you the way I think through it yeah. is that... Um, what would you tell me? If I'm a guy, yeah. I say, you know, you seem like you're... I saw you were a Christian on Twitter. How do I How do I be Christianly in my business? I think shocking people by the love of Christ comes out in some interesting ways, right? So when I think about the 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 reason why I can be kind and humble and generous is both I know how much I'm undeserving of, of uh, God's love and how much he loves me. And so if I have that at my back, um, it totally changes how I interact with the world if I can remember it. And you, this is yeah, the thing. The thing. Yeah, this right. is the thing, right? So what I would say is it's never a perfect standard, right? And again, like I, I joked earlier, I think some people's eyes will be rolling so hard they'll hit the back of their head, right? Yeah. But they've seen you on your bad days, right? Bad and moments, and, yeah. and look, the, the closer you work with people, the worse they're going to see mm-hmm. you at, right? Yep. Um, and and thankfully, I think that they love me despite that. Uh, if not, uh, you know. But they get a good look under the hood, and it's they, not pretty. Yeah, it's yeah. not pretty, right? Um, but what I would say is that being able to 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 be generous in a non-expectant way is a really great way to shock people, uh, uh, the love of Christ, right? So, so if you think about it, most of corporate America does this thing where they're like, we're going to be really generous with you. We're going to give you these benefits. We're going to give you this bonus. If you're willing to work harder, if you're willing to serve me to better, incentivize you. it's an incentive. Yeah, right. It's not just out of generosity, out of kindness, right? So I, I'm trying. I don't I do not do this well yet, but I'm trying to look at, at ways of showing people uh, a level of generosity that's surprising or a level of acceptance that's surprising or a level of grace that's, that's surprising that can only come if, if there's something else going on. Right, something's if, if, driving if, if, you. That's a sense of, like you said, God's generosity, kindness, sacrifice toward you when you were undeserving. Right, you can have that be kind of a motif, a guideline, a framework of how you treat others. And, and I can remember, um, you know, so so recently um, there was uh, uh, there was somebody who screwed up uh, pretty badly, uh, and um, you know, I think the what I would say the old Brent or the older, the younger Brent or whatever you want to call it uh, would have. Um, uh, come down really hard on this person and threatened them and made them feel terrible and rubbed their nose in their failure. And I can remember those impulses sort of welling up in me. And instead I said, thanks for letting me know. That was it. 
can I help you? Can can I help you? Does that make you a bad boss? Is that sacrificing the productivity of the? Well, I don't think. I think in this this case, I I think that in this case, they knew exactly what they had done, and they knew that they had screwed up, and they knew why. They'd learned the lesson, right? So I already need you to rub their. I already paid the cost for it. They didn't need my. They didn't need my help in understanding what the situation was. But I think that again, if you look at you know people as serving you, um, if somebody serves you poorly, you want to make them pay for it. You want to punish them for it, right? Um, and so it kind of works on both sides, right? It's the it's the it's the it's the grace uh, in bad times, and it's the generosity, uh, maybe even not in good times, right? I mean, being able to shock people with that. I think the other side is this uh, a level of truthfulness. I, I'm far less scared not to please people now. Um, so I had this really weird thing early in my career where where I would um, sort of bottle up my frustrations and put on a happy face and then explode. So it'd be like, you're great, great, great until you're fired, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. <laughs> um, it's kind of like the turkey right before Thanksgiving dinner, right? Yeah. It, boy, life's going great. I'm getting tons of food. I'm getting fattened up and then wham, right? That's the axe comes down, buy. right? Yeah. So, you know, I think that when you're less worried about the outcomes needing to be what you think they should be, um, and you're less worried about the consequences from speaking truth, and, and often my truth is wrong, by the way, because my truth's always tainted by my own sin, but but I'm able to be honest with people in a way that I wasn't honest before, and I, th- I think it resonates with people, right? I'm able to tr- tell them the truth when maybe the truth is inconvenient. And you know, being able to share with people when you're disappointed with them and them knowing that you're not going to fire them because you're disappointed or you're not going to like hammer them because you're disappointed and just saying, hey, I just want to let you know, like, this is not how I, I would have appreciated you handling this. I'm like moving on, right? And just having, if they want to have a conversation about it or if, if I do, you know, we, we have a conversation. I've done that much more frequently recently, more recently over the last couple of years than I ever used to do. And you feel like you can do that because they know, at least you hope they know that you're for them. Right. You're not uh, trying to in some way manipulate them by belittling them, but the honesty is there to genuinely help them. Yeah. And I don't think I could do it before because I had a genuine anger Mm -hmm. that I was trying to suppress. And now it's not an anger. I mean, like I, I, uh, if somebody doesn't do something right, uh, at work, I'm like, yeah, it's not ideal. And maybe there's some cleanup and am I mildly frustrated with them, but there's not the same level. I mean, I, I used to have this sort of welling up of, of anger inside of me that my ears used to get red, right? And like you knew when my ears got red that the big trouble, right? Yeah. Like things weren't going to be. Weren't I might be get good. fired. I might something. Right? Like or, or you, I mean, you're talking. Say some. Say some things you can't take back, right? Right. right. And um, you know, thankfully, I, I don't feel like that. My internal feeling isn't that way anymore. How do you uh, coach somebody with all that you know now and your great learning? Uh, your your the the new perspective that you have in all seriousness the new perspective that you have how would you coach somebody going to work instead of thank God it's Friday thank God it's Monday how do how do they get there um, you know I, I would say it's about fundamentally shifting the way you look at work as being a redemptive um, enjoyable activity um, as a way to show. Um, Show God what you can do. Like appreciate the gifts you've been given. Appreciate the position you're in. Right. Like do things with excellence. I think if you if you look at it again as being s- sacrificial, as serving others, and it's like, gosh, I get to go to work and serve people today. Right. Like I, I know this sounds like people are probably again rolling their eyes, but it, you know, 
I, I actually have that thought fairly frequently these days where I like before, you know, I travel a lot and, you know, uh, often flight delays and travel circumstances. And it's a lot of like, you you know, if you want to see a, a, a pretty miserable group of people go to the airport when there's a flight delay, right? People are, are not exactly pleased. And a lot of it is, well, maybe that's an opportunity. If you just reframe it, maybe it's an opportunity to meet somebody you wouldn't have met them otherwise. Maybe it's an opportunity to focus on uh, something that you wouldn't have focused on otherwise. Um, if if life doesn't have to go perfectly well, or even well in general, for you to um, to live it well, I think that there's that it opens up a whole range of possibilities. And so, I think just just so much of life is just the framing you put around it. Thanks, Brent. I really appreciate you being with us today. It's great to hear your thoughts on a lot of things that I think I, I've known about you. I've seen it happen over the last five years, but I think that hearing you articulate it helps kind of pull through some of the key ideas of how and, and what God does in our life when we're growing in our faith. Thank you for joining us for another episode of A Bigger Life. Thank you, Brent, for being here and sharing your story with us and with our listeners. This podcast was produced and edited by Gimel Sabingo. I'm your host, Dave Cover. We'll see you next time.